You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. It's great to be here. I love coming to your church. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, I, don't, I do this much less than I used to because I've actually got myself a proper job. So um, it's, it's really lovely to be let out, uh, especially on a whole weekend. Although I have discovered something really important, which is I am not a teenage girl. <laughs> and, and consequently, if I fall asleep in the middle of my own message, you'll understand why. Uh, because I'm just not used to sleeping on beds designed for short teenage girls. <laughs> but there we have it, as I'm sure you have also been experiencing um, yeah, I am, I am the director of the Free Church Track at Cramden Hall, St. John's College, Durham University, which um, I think makes me sound like I'm in charge of a disused railway line. Uh, <laughs> but actually, I'm living the dream because I am responsible for training people for ministry and church leadership in the north. Cramden has been doing that for over 100 years and started out as a college just for people training for the Anglican Church. It's now a college for people training for all churches, and I'm responsible for the people who are there who are not going to be ordained as, as Anglican church leaders. 32 students this year and growing. Um, massive mix of people, Baptists, Pentecostals, new churches such as yourselves, free evangelicals. It's a fantastic group of people, um, every one of them in a discipleship group, any, every one of them being sort of tutored and mentored as well, as taught important stuff. Um, so it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to work. And of course, you know, Durham, right? It's a slightly better city than York, obviously. Oh. <laughs> there we have it. Um, right, next one. And we're on. Heather's mum uh, died at the beginning of this year. She'd suffered from dementia for, an, for a number of years. She was in a care home about 10 minutes away from us. Um, so Heather could visit her regularly. We looked after her dog, um, who's become our dog. Um, it, it, you know, so it's sad, isn't it? It's sad and also a measure of relief. Um, although she, she did have the happy dementia. You know, all the time boundaries had gone. So she was constantly worrying about Heather's sister, who's in her mid-50s, obviously, uh, being p- picked up from school. Because um, all the sort of time boundaries go down. See, and she was also really worried about losing her father's car keys, which must have happened at some point and probably caused a huge hoo-ha. Uh, but uh, was a, that was a constant thing. But she was actually really, really cheerful as well, which was a, you know, a blessing for her and, and for us and for the dog. Um, <laughs> but the thing that we miss in our family is Granny's raspberry jam. She made the most perfect raspberry jam. I've never, ever, ever tasted raspberry jam like it. It's the very essence and meaning of raspberries was found in Granny's raspberry jam. But of course, she's a good West Yorkshire girl. So she would never go out and buy raspberry jam jars. She would collect jars through the year. And they were all kinds of strange, you know, Marmite jars, oil jars, uh, sardine jars, anything that was jar-like, 
she would collect and she would put her raspberry jam in that. And no one in our family was fooled by what the jar said on the outside. No one. If it said marmite or oil or sardines, everybody in our family, all five children, me, the wife, the dog, uh, we all knew inside was the most beautiful raspberry jam you've ever tasted in your life. And if you weren't quick when the raspberry jam arrived, you'd miss it and you'd be sad. So everyone like, uh, it was raspberry jam day. So it's not what happened on the out, not what was said on the outside that matters. And you know that is true of church, isn't it? You can put a sign up on the outside that says church doesn't make any difference. It's what's going on on the inside that makes all the difference. And I don't know if you've ever wondered, you know, why why do we have church? And how do we know if we've got one? You know, how we may have put the sign up over the door or on the leaflets or on the website, but that doesn't mean it is church. How do we know that we've got an authentic, real, beautiful church going on on the inside? How do we know? Well, the stories of the Gospel of John shape the church. They don't, and they don't just shape the church, they define the church. It's one of the purposes of the gospel. They're there to tell you what it's meant to be like on the inside. And the gospel is actually filled with a compelling vision of the beauty of the church. It's revealed, very interestingly, through all these carefully chosen stories of Jesus meeting people in very, very personal ways. Most of the stories are kind of one-to-one or one-to-group. But inside that is a very, very deep understanding of what the church is. And it's entirely revealed through these stories of personal encounter with Jesus. And the author's vision is that people will come to Christ, become followers of Jesus, find out that they're friends of Jesus, and then discover that they are the church, the people of God. And so many, many, many references all the way through the gospel. The church are God's children, God's family. How do you know you've got church when you've got family on the inside, where we're brothers and sisters and aunties and uncles and nephews and nieces and grandparents and parents? When it's family on the inside, you know you've got church because we are the family of God. That's chapter one. The church are the children of God. The church of the planting of the Lord are are people who are in living union with Christ. Not just believers of Christ or followers of Christ, but actually joined in a life-giving way to the person of Jesus as branches on a vine. That's chapter 15. Joined in intimate connection with Christ, so that everything that is Christ, everything that's the life of Christ, flows up and out through us. That's church on the inside. We find out in chapter 3 that the church are the people gathered from every nation. And this is a controversial statement when it's first made. God so loved the world. We became entirely used to it, haven't we? God so loved the world. Oh yeah, we accept that. 
that he gave his one and only son. When that was written, that was a controversial statement. God doesn't love the world. He loves us. He loves us, the Israelite people. He chose us out from the nations of the world. How come God loves the world? This is a bit of a change. Yes, a massive change. But that's when you know you've got church, when you find people gathered together from the nations because God always intended to reach the world through the choosing of Abraham. He never meant it to go off into an ethnic, separate, special little group who thought they were right and lived out their own little life and didn't care about everybody else and sneered at everybody else. He always intended from the beginning of Abraham to reach and love the world and gather the nations together as one, as his people. And the church, we find out in chapter 10, are the the flock of God, led by the shepherd from God, on a new exodus journey to a new eternal life and a new creation land. That's how you know you've got the the church. Meh, meh, meh. We're all moving together. Meh, follow following Jesus to a, a new life and a new land in eternal new creation. And I am an old, I am an old bloke. <laughs> so a gospel full of a compelling vision of the reality and the beauty and the wonder of church on the inside. But you know, it's in the resurrection stories where all this comes together. And we're just going to look at one over the weekend, John chapter 20, and just a few verses from there, verse 19 to 22. Read this with me. Why don't you read this? Actually, read this with me. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he shook. He showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive everyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. An amazingly rich, dense, compressed, and wonderful scripture. And of course, you've got to read that second half in a proper Pentecostal manner when Jesus said, Receive the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Anyway, we'll get to that tomorrow. Um, Three things from the first part of the story Jesus came, Jesus stood, and Jesus spoke. Jesus came, Jesus stood, and Jesus spoke. Jesus came. Now the wonderful thing about this is that Jesus came by himself and not because anyone invited him. It's actually the other way around. The disciples are living in significant degree of fear. Fear of their own arrest, fear of their own mock trial, fear possibly of their own crucifixion, and they're right to be afraid of these things because those were a real and present danger for them. And just to note as we go by on this one, the church, the real church, the true church, the beautiful church, contained in all kinds of jars of all kinds of labels and shapes, is a persecuted church. 
They are a persecuted people. This was a reality from the very beginning, and it's still a reality right round the world. We're meant to be a people who are set apart, who stand apart. Now, and persecution in the UK currently takes the form of being ignored and dismissed and despised. So it's, a, it's not a very physical kind of persecution, but it's still a rejection. It still is. An interest, yes. A kindliness, yes. An appreciation of what we do for our communities and for, particularly for the poor, yes. But following Jesus and give, surrendering our whole life to Christ, you've got to be kidding me. But the people of God, the people to whom Jesus came to, were a persecuted people, a prophetic people. You know, when I look around in the culture of the UK, I don't feel like I belong. I don't feel like this is my home. This is the place I really love and value. I'm, I'm dismayed by so many things I see that are so ugly, so unkind, so untruthful, so cruel, so demeaning, so dehumanizing. It's all around us. And I don't know whether I've noticed that because I've finally opened my eyes or whether I've got to 64 or not. But it's like, have, have they always been like this? I can't quite decide. But I'm glad I don't belong here. And I'm on a, I'm on a journey <laughs> to a new creation following the shepherd with all of you. I'm glad I'm going somewhere else and I belong somewhere else and my home is somewhere else. But leaving that aside, why are those people there? Why have they gathered? Why, what are they all doing together? Who has brought them together? And of course the answer is it's Jesus who started the whole thing. This wasn't their idea. Being followers of Jesus wasn't their idea. It was Jesus' idea. He said, come follow me. It was Jesus who had the initiative. It was Jesus who called them. It was Jesus who gathered them. The reason they'd come together was because of what Jesus was doing. Jesus had come to each one of them. And they each have a story of how Jesus has come personally and powerfully and kindly to them. They each have a story of how transformative that's been. You know, Simon has become Peter. Right from the beginning, when Jesus first meets Simon, he looks at him and he says, do you know what? Your life is going to change so much, we may as well give you a new name. Who you are on the inside is going to be so transformed and turned around. Your identity is going to be so reshaped, we may as well call you somebody else. In fact, I'm going to start calling you that now as a sign of where you're going when you come to me. The shift is going to be so big, we may as well mark it now and give you a new name. The woman at the well in chapter 4, a woman whose name we actually never, ever get to know, but what we do get to know is the radical transformation that happens in her life. You know, somebody wrote the notes up of this meeting, or at the very least interviewed all the people and remembered what had happened and then wrote it up later because there's such detail here hers was a story marked by pain and grief and loss and rejection the repeated failure of committed relationships 
was it the inability to have children? Was it a life dominated by fear and self-loathing? You know, you can't love another and stay loving another when your life is dominated inside with fear and self-loathing. Was she in that place? Or was it she just kept burning the toast? Because in Israel, Israelite culture, you, as long as you did the paperwork properly, you could, you could divorce your wife because she displeased you. As long as you filled in the paperwork and gave her a certificate of divorce, you could make up your mind as an oppressive male to do that to your wife. We just don't know. What we do know is that she's fetching water at completely the wrong time of day when it's far too hot and nobody else is there, and that appears to be deliberate. Except Jesus came. Jesus was there. And what we also know is that he strangely knows that she has had five husbands and the man she's with now is not her husband. She's given up on the idea of marriage. She's just gone in with him. And what we then see is the complete transformation of her heart and her life. We see a woman who's keeping out of everyone's way, who's been rejected multiple times, who's avoiding everyone, who's got a very painful and difficult story that she doesn't want to revisit. We see that woman going back into her community and inviting everyone in it to come and meet this man who might be the Messiah. She goes from the very edge of the community to the very middle of the community in a single day. And what does she say? Come and meet the man who told me everything I ever did. You know, those of us who have a very painful past rarely want to talk about it. Because it's just reliving the pain. It's just being traumatized again. So this is a very, very, very different moment. Because the past is still in view. The past is openly acknowledged. Come and meet the man who told me everything I ever did. But the past has been reframed. And she has been liberated from its traumatizing power. And if you've got anything to do with counseling or psychology or psychiatry, you will know that that is an extraordinary accomplishment to have reframed the past so it's openly acknowledged without having any damaging power is an amazing moment. Jesus came. Jesus came. You know, the whole reason the church actually even exists is because Jesus came. Personally, It's one of us with the story of transformation and life. And corporately, Jesus decided to gather us together. The church comes into existence one person at a time because Jesus came. The church comes into existence as a gathered group of people joined in heart together because Jesus came and gathered us. 
Why are those people in that room all afraid but being together? Because Jesus came and gathered them and brought them to himself and brought them to each other. How do you know you have church? How do you know, no matter what's on the outside, what's on the inside, how do you know you have church? Because it's clearly the work of Jesus. It's not the elders' work. It's not your work. It's not somebody else's work that brought the church into existence. It's because Jesus came that there is a church. There's a story and a history that brought this church into beginning, into being. There's a story of Jesus transforming our lives. There's a story of Jesus getting hold of the most unlikely people. There's a story of people being brought together who would not otherwise even speak to each other or know each other or feel that they belonged together. You know, church is not something that we do and desperately ask God to bless our efforts. It's the other way around. Church is what God is doing and calling us to step into what he has started, what he is building, what he is growing and what he will sustain. The weight of the existence of the church does not rest on the members or the leaders of the church, but on the sovereign authority of God himself. God builds, God grows, God gathers, God sustains. How do you know you've got church? Because Jesus came. And that's what he does. That's what he does. He comes to individual people. And he renames them and he reshapes them and he brings them together. Fearful, maybe. Locked away, maybe. But still the church of Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us then? Well, just a few thoughts on that. Number one, recognize the holiness of the church. The church is the work of God. Your church is a work of Jesus. Recognize the holiness of your existence and your being. Be kind to the church. Be gentle with the church. Be respectful of the church. Be truthful to the church. Be wholehearted in the church. Because the church is the work of Jesus. Secondly, cherish the story of the church. Cherish the story. Yes, it's full of human weakness and disaster and failings, but you know that's all part of the story of God's grace and mercy and power in bringing us into being in the first place, is it not? Our weakness is a part of the story of God's mercy and God's initiative and God's grace. Our story is the story of how Jesus came into all our fear and our mess and our failure, but Jesus came and look what has happened because he came cherish the story of your church and the work of god that is your church and lastly look look for the coming of christ in your midst look for the presence of jesus in your midst look for the leading of the lord look for what god is doing there was a lady who came to our church she was very, very closed. 
she would hardly speak. She used to sit in the second row, which surprised me, but by herself. And she wouldn't say anything. For months, she didn't say anything. And then she just began gently to warm up and open up and interact and talk. And then the day came, which I'll never forget. I was, we'd, we'd had our time of worship, sung worship together, and I was preparing to preach, which having a little break in the middle, and I was preparing to preach. She came to me, and she's disclosed that 35 years previously, she'd been very seriously sexually abused by a member of her own family. And of course, I'm trying to do a lot of things all at the same time at that point. I'm trying to recall our safeguarding policy and my responsibilities within that, because we take that very, very seriously. I'm trying to pastor her in the moment and give her my full attention, because this is a, I know that this is a moment that has been a long time coming. And I'm trying to remember and be prepared for my preaching which is coming up in less than five minutes' time. And of course, I, you know, I'm looking for solutions, I'm, I'm asking her questions, and I'm, I'm, sort of, I'm very focused on what might be the underlying things that are going on. And I, I, I ask her this question, I say, okay, so on a measure of, you know, um, 0 to 10, how much do you feel you've been able to forgive this person? Where not, you've not been able to forgive them at all. And ten, you, you're completely through on that. You're, 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 you're able even to bless them and pray for them. She said, well, I'm about minus 35. <laughs> uh, okay, that's fine. That's understandable <laughs> and real. And of course, I'm searching for a book. There must be a book that she can read <laughs> that will help her. And actually, there is a book called Total Forgiveness by R.T. Kendall that's very, very good. I said, have you read that book? It's very, very good. And in it, he, one of the reasons why it's good is he, he distinguishes between forgiveness and trust. He says, you can forgive somebody, but never have to trust them again. Trust is not a mark of forgiveness. And I think that's helpful for people in this kind of city. And she says, no, I've not read that book. And she didn't seem that very interested in the book. But I said, look, let's, uh, I've got to go and preach now. And um, let's talk again later. And on we went. Next week she came back. And uh, actually, no, she sent me a text. I must remember this story accurately. She sent me a text within three days. A very, very, very long text. She'd met with Jesus. Jesus came to her in a really complex dream that I don't want to tell you and can't tell you. and We haven't got time for me to tell you. But ba- the essence of it is, Jesus came to her in a very complex dream, led her through a sequence of events that enabled her to completely forgive the, her abuser. I mean, like completely. And she came the next Sunday and she, we talked and she said, 35 years of every time you get in a lift looking for a backup escape plan. 35 years of every time you're in a room and there are other men in the room looking for where the exit doors are. 35 years of never sleeping through the night. Gone. 
done. Now that's a wonderful story, is it not? And there are different stories that take longer and have different ingredients, but they are all of the same essence. Jesus came, and that's why we've got the church. That's why our lives have been transformed. That's why we have been gathered together, because Jesus came. Who has the initiative here? Who has the authority here? Who is really doing the work here? Jesus came. So helpful, isn't it? So helpful. Recognize the holiness of the church. Cherish the story of the church. And look for the Jesus who comes all the time. You know, I... I, I'll never forget our second building project in the church. You know, buying a building as a church is a very, very difficult thing to do. And you've done well. There are, I know lots of churches have never quite managed it. We'd outgrown our first church building, and we were looking for a new one. We're a church of about 125 people, so not, not about this sort of size, I suppose. Maybe a little bit bigger, but not much. We had a gift day. The church gave £135,000 in a single day. This is like quite a long time ago. Uh, I cried. Single day. 135 grand. Wow. Next week, church member rings me up and says, Ian, I wasn't uh, in the gift day. I want to give as well. I want to give 100,000 pounds. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, I cried again. <laughs> like, so we had quarter of a million pounds sitting in the bank and no, no building to buy. We couldn't find one in the centre of Newcastle. And then one of, my, one of our trustees rang me up in a state of high excitement very early in the morning. He says, I've had a dream, I've had a dream, Ian. I've had a dream of a building. Like you do. <laughs> now, he was a town planner, so he actually knew where the building was of the one that he dreamt about. So we looked it up and we found out who owned it, and it was Stagecoach, the bus company. And he said, what should we do, what should we do? I said, well, let's ring them up. So we ring up Stagecoach, the bus company, and we say, look, funny question, but are you thinking of selling your building? And they said, yes, we are. And how on earth did you know? And we said, well, God told us. (laughs) (laughs) And two days later, we were sitting with the managing director and the property director, and what we found out was that they had, as a board, passed the resolution to sell the building, but the property director just hadn't got round to instructing the agent to sell it. And we came in the few days in between those two things happening. They were totally amazed and very kind, and they sold it to us. They were very interested in what kind of a church we were, and uh, they said, you know, we've got a stained glass window. (laughs) And they do. They have a stained glass window of a trap. As if that would... As if that would add value in our eyes. (laughs) And we instructed a property uh, consultant who turned out to be the best person in the whole of Tyneside and became a really good friend of mine. And he negotiated the deal with me. And the one thing he said to me is, in the meeting, I want you to speak a word, which you can imagine how difficult that was. (laughs) 
And he's sitting in the meeting. We go round and 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 round. I think, what is he going on about? I'm just itching to say something, like relevant and important. They said, no, no, you told me not to say anything. Round and round. And suddenly he goes, right, how much over a quarter of a million do my clients have to offer to secure this building? And what I realized later was he's looking for body language. He's trying to pitch in. And if he's got it right, they'll get a certain response. If he's too high, they'll go, ooh. And if he's too low, they'll go, ooh. And he got it exactly right. And we bought it for £240,000. Amazing. How did all that happen? Jesus came. Did that happen because of me? No, 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 no. Or the trustee? No. Or the generosity of the church? All that contributed a little bit. But the real reason that the Castlegate building is there in the middle of Newcastle, belonging to City Church, is because Jesus came. And that's in our story, and we cherish that story. Well, I cherish the story. Cherish your story, whether that's something personal or it's something that has happened to you together. Cherish the stories of Jesus coming that point to the reality of how do you know you've got church? Well, because Jesus came and started something in my life, in your life, in in our life. So let's just have a little discussion, shall we? I I, I want you to do a little bit of work now. I I wasn't expecting this, but this sort of stitch star thing, but never mind, you'll have to make the best of it. Turn to somebody near you, or if, if you don't like the look of them, move. Without, you know, giving the game away. And uh, I want you to cherish your own story. Okay. Now, if you're new to the church, this might be harder and more challenging. But I think it's still good for you. I want you to engage with your own story. What is it about the story of City Church in York that shows you that Jesus has come? Okay. Everyone clear? Okay. Off you go. Do a little bit of cherishing. Okay, everybody, let's come back together again. Well done for cherishing. You can practice that some more. And not just this weekend, but for the rest of your lives. Jesus came, Jesus stood. Jesus came and stood among them. He is a new creation man. And just to note as we go by, this is described by the author as the first day of the week. And of course, that's an allusion to back into Genesis. Because what happens on the first day of the first week in the story of the Bible? What happens? Come on, this is a real question. <laughs> What's the first week? The first day of the first week? What happens? Creation happens. Creation begins. The first week described in Genesis chapter 1 is a week of creation. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that that means it happened in seven 24-hour consecutive periods. To start with, the sun doesn't appear until day four, so that makes that a little bit tricky. Genesis 1 is not, deliberately not, a scientific or cosmological story. It's a theological story. 
with its emphasis on who brought all this into being. And it describes it in this beautiful week, this narrative week of events. And on day one, what do we get? We get light and dark. We get spaces created, light and dark spaces. Then on day two, we get waters above and waters below. And then on day three, we get waters below made into sea and we get land appearing. So three spaces are are made. And then on the next set of three days, those spaces are inhabited. Day four, the sun and the moon and the stars inhabit the light space. And it's night and day. In day five, the birds and the fish inhabit the waters above and the waters below. And in day six, the trees and the animals and us inhabit the land. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story. And what the author is saying is, look, first day of the first week, creation begins. This is the first day in another week of new creation has begun the new creation begins in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead because Jesus didn't come back into the body he had before in John's gospel there are two resurrection stories Lazarus and Jesus and they're both massive stories but Lazarus comes back into the body he had before and the grave clothes have to be unwound and given something to eat. And Lazarus will die again. Jesus doesn't come back into the body he had before. He goes on into new creation. First day of the first week, new creation has begun. A new creation man is standing in a room in Jerusalem. Church is the meeting place of two realities. Church has an earthly existing creation reality, don't we? We, 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 we have seats we're sitting on and bodies we have and uh, beds that we lie on, perhaps to sleep, and <laughs> meal, meals that we will eat. We inhabit an existing creation reality. But church also is new creation reality. Church is spiritual new creation. And what you always have to keep in mind when talking about spiritual new creation reality is it's much more real and tangible than the existing creation. I mean, what are you? What are you? A wreck. A wreck. Well, apart from that. (laughs) Join various clubs. I'm a member. You are electronic charges moving around to probability pattern at high speed you're mostly nothing you're mostly space so am i and the fact that space meets space means you know it feels real and it it kind of is real (laughs) but it's not as real as the new creation the new creation is so self-organizing it will never decay it's more powerful, much more powerful, much more tangible, much more real. So a new creation man stands up. And the word stood is like one rising and becoming visible. So imagine I was sitting down here. You people, <laughs> there, you probably, if, if you hadn't known I was here, you wouldn't know I was here. <laughs> if you follow me. <laughs> but as soon as I stand up, I become visible to you. And that's the sense of the word, rising up 
and becoming visible to the group. Jesus doesn't come in through the door or even through the probability pattern of electronic charges that we call a wall. <laughs> Jesus doesn't come in and say, oh, can I come in, please? Will you unlock the door? Hello. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He just rises in their midst as one becoming visible. And at the end, he doesn't wave goodbye and leave. At the end of the story, he's simply not visible. So when Thomas comes back with the shopping, they have a huge barney about that. <laughs> and at the end of the Thomas story, all this becomes explicit, that being present in new creation is different to being visible in the existing creation. Blessed are those who don't see and believe. Blessed are those who know that the presence of Jesus is here, now, risen in our midst. Jesus came and stood among them. And Jesus is still standing among us. Here, now. Because that's what the church is. Church is the gathered people of God that Jesus has gathered that Jesus has transformed, that Jesus has come to, amongst whom Jesus rises up and stands. And that word to stand or to rise up or, to, or establish is closely associated with temple building. It's the temple that rises up and is established and becomes visible. It's the temple that stands. That word is used of Jesus and it's used of the, of the building of the temple in, in Jewish uh, history. And Jesus promises very early in John's Gospel that he's going to rebuild the temple. You know, Jesus goes to the existing temple and he makes a whip. Don't you love that about Jesus? He makes a whip. Imagine what the disciples felt. Ah, oh, rope, please, Andrew. Go off and buy me some rope. And then he, he, he sits on the ground. He's uh, nodding. He's been in the scouts, Jesus. He's nodding and... <laughs> what is he doing what is he doing that looks like a whip and then he's on his feet he's cracking his whip and he's kicking tables I mean it's brilliant stuff <laughs> and, and he's smacking cows on the backside and he's very 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 angry why is he angry because they have corrupted the worship of God and made the worship of God a money making enterprise and not unnaturally, the, the authorities want to sign. They recognize this as a prophetic action. And prophets have to give signs to display their authority. And Jesus tells them what the sign's going to be. Destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they go off on one because they... And this actually dates the gospel. If only we knew the date they'd begun. Because they say, well, we've been building this temple for four to six years. Typical building project. Over time and <laughs> over budget. <laughs> but we don't know when they began so we don't know what year this is it's very irritating but for the original readers they, this is a dating technique anyway he says look I destroy the temple I'll rebuild it in three days destroy the temple two layers of meaning there there's himself as the temple and John introduces this idea very early in the gospel 
the Word becomes flesh and makes his dwelling among us, says John. And the Word made his dwelling is the same as pitching the tent. The Word who was God becomes flesh, a man, and pitches his tent among us. A reference back to Exodus story and Israel in the desert and God being in the midst. And they assemble the tent and God fills the tent and they can't go inside the tent because the glory of God has come into the midst of the tent. The tent is, is, is the pitching of God's dwelling and the revealing of God's glory. And of course Jesus is the pitching of God's tent and the revealing of God's glory. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son. So destroy this temple, destroy me, the tabernacling presence of God in the midst of God's people. But there's also the second layer of meaning, destroy the actual temple. And that's what they've done. They've corrupted it so much. They've destroyed it. It's no longer what it was. It's no longer the pitching of God's tent and the dwelling of God's glory. It's all, that's all been destroyed, all been corrupted. It's all now man-made, man-focused, man-purposed, which is why Jesus in anger brings it to a halt for an hour or so as a prophetic sign that it's over anyway and it will be destroyed once and for all and it's never been rebuilt. But the idea of the temple is not finished. They've corrupted and destroyed it. Jesus says, I will rebuild it. The place of prayer, the place of worship, the place of encounter with God, the place of forgiveness of sins, the place of God's dwelling among us. I will rebuild it and I will rebuild it in three days. And the narrator adds a little comment. The temple he spoke about was his body. Two layers of meaning there as well. His body, meaning his body, his physicality, raised into new creation life in three days, and also, deeply connected to that, the church. The church as the dwelling place of God that Jesus would rebuild. What is the rebuilt temple that began three days after the crucifixion? It's the gathered people of God with Jesus risen in our midst, Jesus standing in our midst. That's the real church. How do you know you've got church? When the followers of Jesus, the friends of Jesus gather and gather not just sense in, the, in the sense of being in the same place at the same time in the same meeting. The gathering is deeper. Being a body, being a family, being a flock. Meh. Meh. On a journey together. Being a family together, being a, a body together, being a flock together, or a vine together, a house A temple built by the hands of Jesus with Jesus in our midst. We are the pitching of God's tent and the revealing of God's glory. That's what the church is. The house of God. Now in the house of God, where is the focus Imagine you've been gathered in that place, afraid, anxious, perplexed, concerned, and then 
Jesus rises in the midst. New creation reality within touching distance. Where's the focus? Is it on the lunch? Is it on the lunch? Is it on the lack of sleep? Where's the focus? It's on Jesus. And that's church in the house of God. All eyes are on God. And Jesus stands in our midst. What does that mean? Well, make Jesus preeminent in everything that you are and do. You know, what's the worship for? Who's the worship for? Who does it make famous? Jesus. When you're worshipping, who are you looking at? (laughs) Who are you looking at? Who is most prominent? Good questions to ask. What's the preaching for? To inform us, yes. To help us, yes. To encourage us in the way we live, yes. Much more importantly, to reveal Jesus who stands among us so every eye can be on him. What's the discipleship for? When you gather in a discipleship group, is it like a little self-help thing? Or is it so we can encounter Jesus? What's the administration for? It's to make things work well so we can encounter Jesus. What's prayer for? What's community for? What's hospitality for? Jesus came and stood in their midst. Make Jesus preeminent in everything you do by doing everything in humility. Now, there's a a subtlety here because humility does not equate with doing something badly. You know, I hear preachers who say, I don't need to study. And of course, this gets me going because I'm someone who encourages people to study. I don't need to study. I just need to say the first thing that comes into my head. That's what makes more room for God, apparently. That is not humility, people. That self-sufficiency and complacency. Preachers need to study and they need to study hard and they need to study for years. Not that they can be congratulated on the excellence of their knowledge, but that they can raise up Jesus as he truly is. And it's the same with the pastoring, it's the same with the administering, it's the same with the worship leading, it's the same with the discipling. Don't be complacent and self-sufficient or proud, or arrogant, do everything in humility of heart and mind and soul because that's what makes room for it to be about Jesus and not about me. So, oh, we're doing great. I want you to spend a little bit of time in prayer now. So I hope you liked the person you were talking to. I'd like you to pray with them now. I want you to, you know, it says pray for all aspects of the church's life. That's a little bit ambitious. 
Pray for, <laughs> pray for something in the life of the church, whether that's the worship or the preaching or the discipleship or the hospitality, or the administration or the pastoring, whatever it is that's on your heart, pray that Jesus stands in the midst and all eyes are on Jesus through the agency of humble people. Clear? Off you go then. Pray for your church. Okay, let's come back together again. If you can just draw your prayers to a close. And that's something you can do for the rest of your life as well. Pray for the church to be a place where Jesus stands and all eyes are upon him, whether that's through the administration or the pastoring or the discipling or the preaching or the worshipping, whatever you're doing, that all eyes will be on Jesus through the agency of humble people. Jesus came. Jesus stood. Jesus spoke. And Jesus spoke the peace how many times did he speak peace in that little section of John's Gospel? Can you? Twice. I've even put it in large <laughs> type for, to help you. Twice. Very, very deliberate because this brings in Psalm 122. You may not have realized it, but as you read John's Gospel, you're reading the entire Old Testament as well. Just never bothered to kind of reference it properly. Wouldn't have got very high marks. Um, <laughs> sitting underneath the Gospel of John is the, the Hebrew Bible, what we now call the Old Testament. And Psalm 122 is a song of ascent. It's a song that we sing whilst processing up the Temple Mount to the Temple to be in the presence of God. And all the language of Psalm 122 is found in this little story that we're looking at this morning. So why don't we stand and say Psalm 122 together. Start on the left hand side. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built us a city that is bound firmly together. To it the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For there the thrones for judgment were set up, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For the sake of my relatives and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Amen. Please sit down. This is a psalm we sing when we go to the house of God, the dwelling of God, the pitching of God's tent. This is the invitation to go. Then there's the arrival and our feet are standing in the gates. There's thanksgiving, there's rejoicing. We're in the presence of God from which comes the rule of God. The throne of God has been established. And there the peace blessing is spoken twice. And this idea of, of God's people living with God in God's house under the peace of God, this flows all the way through Scripture. Isaiah 54.10 
For the mountains may depart, the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Ezekiel 34, speaking of God's judgment against the false shepherds and the promise of the true shepherd to come. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He'll feed them. He'll feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild animals from the land so that they may live in the wild and sleep in the woods securely. I'll make them and the region around my hill a blessing. I'll send down showers in their season. There'll be showers of blessing. And Ezekiel 37, where the resurrection of God's people happens, says, I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It'll be an everlasting covenant with them. I'll bless them and multiply them and set my sanctuary among them forever and the covenant of peace is the knowing and receiving of God's grace and God's love the covenant of peace is knowing that all your sins are forgiven the covenant of peace is knowing that God is for you and God is with you the covenant of peace is knowing that the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And that he makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God will accompany me. How do you know you have church? when Jesus speaks the peace blessing over us repeatedly. And this is the lived experience of everyone who gathers. We don't live in shame and we don't shame each other. We don't live in fear and we don't intimidate one another. We don't live in guilt. And we don't judge and condemn each other. And when you live like this together, when you live under the repeated speaking of the covenant of peace, you can come very close. And that's what Psalm 122 says and promises. Jerusalem will be built as a city that is firmly bound together or closely compacted together the house of God the city of God is built together compacted together tightly bound together how do you know you've got church because you have a people who are built closely together living under the peace of God and living out the peace of God to each other not being controlled, not living under intimidation or fear, not living because of the power of personality or leadership ego, not driven by a performance mentality, but joined together by love, 
compacted tightly together by love. I'm not just attending a weekend with you, but you're part of my life. My home is your home. My joys are, are your joys. Your needs are my needs. And this is something we all are and something we all express. How do you know you've got church? Because Jesus comes, Jesus stands, and Jesus speaks the peace into our life together. So, I want you just to reflect on your own now. Who are you built on in this church? Who do you rest on? Who do you look to? Who do you lean on? Who supports you? Or who are you built next to? Who are you close to? Or who rests on you? Who, who looks to you and receives strength and security because you're there? Take all of those people, or any one of them, just reflect on it. Who put a real name on that? You're closely compacted together, you're built together out of relationships of love. Well, there are real names and real addresses and real mobile phone numbers involved in this. Who are those people, either that you're resting on or you're against, not against, you're with, <laughs> or who rest on you? Ask God to show you that more clearly. And then I want you to pray just on your own for the peace of God, more grace, more love more of the blessing of God to come to you and through you to those around you. Everyone clear? Off you go.